Desperate Remedies by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Thirteen: The Events of One Day. Read for LibriVox.org by Malcolm Fisher of Dover, England. Chapter Thirteen, Part Two. But I will say nothing about who influenced, who persuaded. The act is mine after all, Edward. I married to escape dependence on my bread upon the whim of Miss Aldcliffe, or others like her. It was clearly represented to me that dependence is bearable if we have another place which we can call home. But to be dependent and to have no other spot for the heart to anchor upon, oh, it is mournful and harassing. But that without which all persuasion would have been as air was added by my miserable conviction that you were false that did it that turned me you were to be considered as nobody to me and mr manston was invariably kind well the deed is done i must abide by it i shall never let him know that i do not love him never if things had only remained as they had seemed to be if you had really forgotten me and married another woman i could have borne it better i wish i did not know the truth as i know it now but our life what is it let us be brave edward and live out our few remaining years with dignity they will not be long oh i hope they will not be long now good-bye good-bye i wish i could be near and touch you once just once said springrove in a voice which he vainly endeavoured to keep firm and clear they looked at the river then into it a shoal of minnows was floating over the sandy bottom like the black dashes on miniver though narrow the stream was deep and there was no bridge cytherea reach out your hand that i may just touch it with mine she stepped to the brink and stretched out her hand fingers towards him but not into them the river was too wide never mind said cytherea her voice broken by agitation i must be going god bless and keep you my edward god bless you i must touch you i must press your hand he said they came near nearer nearer still their fingers met there was a long firm clasp so close and still that each hand could feel the other's pulse throbbing beside its own my cytherea my stolen pet lamb she glanced a mute farewell from her large perturbed eyes turned and ran up the garden without looking back all was over between them the river flowed on as quietly and obtrusively as ever and the minnows gathered again in their favourite spot as if they had never been disturbed nobody indoors guessed from her countenance and bearing that her heart was near to breaking with the intensity of the misery which gnawed there at these times a woman does not faint or weep or scream as she will in the moment of sudden shocks when lanced by a mental agony of such refined and special torture that it is indescribable by men's words she moves among her acquaintances much as before and contrives so to cast her actions in the old moulds that she is only considered to be rather duller than usual five half past two to five o'clock p m 
Owen accompanied the newly married couple to the railway station, and in his anxiety to see the last of his sister, left the brougham and stood upon his crutches whilst the train was starting. When the husband and wife were about to enter the railway carriage, they saw one of the porters looking frequently and furtively at them. He was pale and apparently very ill. "'Look at that poor sick man,' said Cytherea compassionately. "'Surely he ought not to be here.' "'He's been very queer to-day, madam, very queer,' another porter answered. "'He do hardly hear when he's spoken to, and to seem giddy, or as to be something on his mind. He's been like it for this month past, but nothing so bad as he is to-day.' "'Poor thing!' She could not resist an innate desire to do something just on this most deceitful and wretched day of her life. Going up to him, she gave him money, and told him to send to the old manor-house for wine, or whatever he wanted. The train moved off, as the trembling man was murmuring his incoherent thanks. Owen waved his hand. Cytherea smiled back at him, as if it were unknown to her that she wept all the while. Owen was driven back to the old house, but he could not rest in the lonely place. His conscience began to reproach him for having forced on the marriage of his sister with a little too much peremptoriness. Taking up his crutches, he went out of doors and wandered about the muddy roads with no object in view save that of getting rid of time. The clouds, which had hung so low and densely during the day, cleared from the west just now as the sun was setting calling forth a weakly twitter from a few small birds owen crawled down the path to the waterfall and lingered thereabout till the solitude of the place oppressed him when he turned back and into the road to the village he was sad he said to himself if there is ever any meaning in those heavy feelings which are called presentiments and i don't believe there is it will be in mine to-day, poor little Cytherea. At that moment the last low rays of the sun touched the head and shoulders of a man who was approaching, and showed him up to Owen's view. It was old Mr. Springrove. They had grown familiar with each other by reason of Owen's visits to Knapwater during the past year. The farmer inquired how Owen's foot was progressing, and was glad to see him so nimble again. "'How is your son?' said Owen mechanically. He is at home, sitting by the fire, said the farmer in a sad voice. This morning he slipped indoors, from God knows where, and there he sits and mopes, and thinks, and thinks, and presses his head so hard that I can't help feeling for him. Is he married? said Owen. Cytherea had feared to tell him of the interview in the garden. No, I can't quite understand how the matter rests. Ah, Edward, too, who started with such promise that he should now have become such a careless fellow, not a month in one place. There, Mr. Gray, I know what it is mainly owing to. If it hadn't been for that heart affair, he might have done, but the less said about him the better. I don't know what we should have done, if Miss Aldcliffe had insisted upon the conditions of the leases. Your brother-in-law, the steward, had a hand in making it light for us, I know, and I heartily thank him for it, he ceased speaking and looked round at the sky. "'Have you heard of what's happened?' he said suddenly. "'I was just coming out to learn about it. 
I haven't heard of anything. It is something very serious, though. I don't know what. All I know is what I heard a man call out by now, that it very much concerns somebody who lives in the parish. It seems singular enough, even to minds who have no dim belief in adumbration and presentiment, that at the moment not a shadow of a thought crossed Owen's mind, that the somebody whom the matter concerned might be himself, or any belonging to him. The event about to transpire was as portentous to the woman whose welfare was more dear to him than his own, as any, short of death itself, could possibly be, and even afterwards, when he considered the effect of the knowledge the next half-hour conveyed to his brain, even his practical good sense could not refrain from wonder that he should have walked towards the village after hearing those words of the farmer in so leisurely and unconcerned a way. How unutterably mean must my intelligence have appeared to the eye of a foreseeing God, he frequently said in after-times. Columbus, on the eve of his discovery of a world, was not so contemptibly unaware. After a few additional words of commonplace, the farmer left him, and as had been said, Owen proceeded slowly and indifferently towards the village. The labouring men had just left work and passed the park gate, which opened into the street as Owen came down towards it. They went along in a drift, earnestly talking, and were finally about to turn in at their respective doorways. But upon seeing him, they looked significantly at one another and paused. He came into the road, on that side of the village green, which was opposite the row of cottages, and turned round to the right. When Owen turned, all eyes turned. One or two men went hurriedly indoors, but afterwards appeared at the doorstep with their wives, who also contemplated him, talking as they looked. They seemed uncertain how to act in some matter. If they want me, surely they will call me, he thought, wondering more and more. He could no longer doubt that he was connected with the subject of their discourse. The first who approached him was a boy. What has occurred? said Owen. Oh, a man had gone crazy religious and sent for the parson. Is that all? Yes, sir. He wished he was dead, he said, and he's almost out of his mind with wishing it so much. That was before Mr. Ranham came. Who is he? said Owen. Joseph Chinney, one of the railway porters. He used to be night porter. Ah, the man who was ill this afternoon. By the way, he was told to come to the old house for something, but he hasn't been. But has anything else happened? Anything concerns the wedding day? No, sir. Concluding that the connection, which had seemed to be traced between himself and the event, must in some way have arisen from Cytheria's friendliness towards the man, Owen turned about and went homeward in a much quieter frame of mind, yet scarcely satisfied with the solution. The route he had chosen led through the dairy-yard, and he opened the gate. Five minutes before this point of time, Edward Springrove was looking over one of his father's fields at an outlying hamlet of three or four cottages some mile and a half distance. A turnpike gate was closed by the gate of the field. The carrier to Casterbridge came up as Edward stepped into the road, and jumped down from the van to pay toll. He recognised Springrove. "'This is a pretty set to in your place, sir,' he said. "'You don't know about it, I suppose.' "'What?' said Springrove. The carrier paid his dues, came up to Edward, 
and spoke ten words in a confidential whisper, then sprang upon the shaft of his vehicle, gave a clinching nod of significance to Springrove, and rattled away. Edward turned pale with the intelligence. His first thought was, Bring her home. The next, Did Owen Gray know about what had been discovered? He probably did by that time. But no risks of probability must be run by a woman he loved dearer than all the world besides. He would, at any rate, make perfectly sure that her brother was in possession of the knowledge by telling it to him with his own lips. Off he ran, in the direction of the old manor-house. The path was across arable land, and was ploughed up with the rest of the field every autumn, after which it was trodden out afresh. The thaw had so loosened the soft earth that lumps of stiff mud were lifted by his feet at every leap he took, and flung against him by his rapid motion, as it were doggedly impeding him, and increasing tenfold the customary effort of running. But he ran on, uphill and downhill at the same pace, like the shadow of a cloud. His nearest direction, too, like Owen's, was through the dairy Barton, and as Owen entered it he saw the figure of Edward rapidly descending the opposite hill, at a distance of two or three hundred yards. Owen advanced amid the cows. The dairyman, who had hitherto been talking loudly on some absorbing subject to the maids and the men milking around him, turned his face towards the head of the cow when Owen passed and ceased speaking. Owen approached him and said, "'A singular thing has happened, I hear. The man is not insane, I suppose.' "'Not he. He is sensible enough,' said the dairyman, and paused. He was a man noisy with associates, stolid and taciturn with strangers. "'Is it true that he is Chinny, the railway porter?' "'That's the man, sir.' The maids and men sitting under the cows were alternatively listening to this discourse, milking irregularly, and softly directing the jets against the sides of the pail. Owen could contain himself no longer. Much as his mind dreaded anything of the nature of ridicule, the people all around seemed to look at me, as if something seriously concerned me. Is it this stupid matter? What is it? Surely, sir, you know better than any one else, if such a strange thing concerns you. What strange thing? You don't know? He's confessing to Parson Raynham. What did he confess? Tell me. If you really haven't heard, says this. He was as usual on duty at the station on the night of the fire last year, otherwise he wouldn't have known it. No what? For God's sake, tell man. But at this instant, the two opposite gates of the dairy yard, one on the east, the other on the west side, slammed almost simultaneously. The rector from one, Springrove from the other, came striding across the barton. Edward was nearest and spoke first. He said in a low voice, "'Your sister is not legally married. His first wife is still living. How it comes out, I don't know.' "'Oh, here you are at last, Mr. Gray, thank heavens,' said the rector breathlessly. "'I have been to the old house, and then to Miss Aldcliffe's looking for you. Something very extraordinary.' He beckoned to Owen afterwards, included Springrove in his glance, and the three stepped inside together. The porter at the station, he was a curious, nervous man. He had been in a strange state all day, but he wouldn't go home. 
Your sister was kind to him, it seems, this afternoon. When she and her husband had gone, he went on with his work, shifting luggage vans. Well, he got in the way, as if he were quite lost on to what was going on, and they sent him home at last. Then he wished to see me. I went directly. There was something on his mind, he said, and told it. About the time when the fire of last November twelve-month had got under way, whilst he was by himself in the porter's room, almost asleep, somebody came to the station and tried to open the door. He went out and found the person to be the lady he had accompanied to Carriford earlier in the evening, Mrs. Manston. She asked, when would be another train to London? The first the next morning, he told her, was at a quarter past six o'clock from Budmouth, but that it was an express and didn't stop at Carriford Road. It didn't stop till it got to Anglebury. How far is it to Anglebury, she asked. He told her, and she thanked him, and went away up the line. In a short time she ran back and took out her purse. Don't on any account say a word in the village, or anywhere, that I have been here, or a single breath about me. I am ashamed ever to have come. He promised. She took out two sovereigns. Swear it on the testament in the waiting-room, she said, and I'll pay you these. He got the book, took an oath upon it, received the money, and she left him. He was off duty at half-past five. He had kept silence all through the intervening time till now, but lately the knowledge he possessed weighed heavily upon his conscience and weak mind. Yet the nearer came the wedding-day, the more he feared to tell. The actual marriage filled him with remorse. He says your sister's kindness afterwards was like a knife going through his heart. He thought he had ruined her. But whatever can be done? Why didn't he speak sooner? cried Owen. He actually called at my house twice yesterday, the rector continued, resolved, it seems, to unburden his mind. I was out both times. He left no message, and they say he looked relieved that his object was defeated. Then he says he resolved to come to you at the old house last night, started, reached the door, and dreaded to knock, and then went home again. Here will be a tale for the newsmongers of the county, said Owen bitterly. The idea of his not opening his mouth sooner. The criminality of the thing. Ah, that's the inconsistency of a weak nature. But now that it is put to us this way, how much more probable it seems that she should have escaped than have been burned. You will, of course, go straight to Mr. Manson and ask him what it all means, Edward interrupted. Of course I shall. Manson has no right to carry off my sister unless he's her husband, said Owen. I shall go and separate them. Certainly you will, said the rector. Where's the man? In his cottage. Tis no use going to him either. I must go off at once and overtake them. Lay the case before Manston and ask him for additional and certain proofs of his first wife's death. An up-train passes soon, I think. Where have they gone? said Edward. To Paris, as far as Southampton this afternoon, to proceed to-morrow morning. Where in Southampton? I really don't know. Some hotel. I only have their Paris address. But I shall find them by making a few inquiries. The rector had, in the meantime, been taking out his pocket-book, and now opened it at the first page, whereupon it was his custom every month to gum a small railway timetable cut from the local newspaper. 
This afternoon's express has just gone, he said, holding open the page, and the next train to Southampton passes at ten minutes to six o'clock. Now it wants, let me see, five and forty minutes to that time. Mr. Gray, my advice is that you come with me to the porter's cottage, where I will shortly write out the substance of what he has said, and get him to sign it. You will then have far better grounds for interfering between Mr. and Mrs. Manston than if you went to them with a mere hearsay story. The suggestion seemed a good one. Yes, there will be time before the train starts, said Owen. Edward had been musing restlessly. Let me go to Southampton in your place, on account of your lameness, he said suddenly to Grave. I am much obliged to you, but I think I can scarcely accept the offer, returned Owen coldly. Mr. Manston is an honourable man, and I had much better see him myself. There is no doubt, said Mr. Raynham, that the death of his wife was fully believed in by himself. None whatever, said Owen, and the news must be broken to him, and the question of other proofs asked, in a friendly way. It would not do for Mr. Springrove to appear in the case at all. He still spoke rather coldly. The recollection of the attachment between his sister and Edward was not a pleasant one to him. "'You will never find them,' said Edward. "'You have never been to Southampton, and I know every house there.' "'That makes little difference,' said the rector. "'He will have a cab. Certainly Mr. Gray is a proper man to go on the errand. "'Stay. I'll telegraph and ask them to meet me when I arrive at the terminus,' said Owen. "'That is, if their train has not already arrived.' Mr. Raynham pulled out his pocket-book again. The 2.30 train reached Southampton a quarter of an hour ago, he said. It was too late to catch them at the station. Nevertheless, the rector suggested that it would be worth while to direct a message to all the respectable hotels in Southampton, on the chance of its finding them, and thus saving a deal of personal labour to Owen in searching about the place. I'll go and telegraph whilst you return to the man, said Edward, and offer which was accepted. Grey and the rector then turned off in the direction of the porter's cottage. Edward, to dispatch the message at once, hurriedly followed the road towards the station, still restlessly thinking. All Owen's proceedings were based on the assumption, natural under the circumstances, of Manston's good faith, and that he would readily acquiesce in any arrangement which should clear up the mystery. But, thought Edward, suppose and heaven forgive me i cannot help supposing it that manston is not that honourable man what will a young and inexperienced fellow like owen do will he not be hoodwinked by some spurious story or another framed to last till manston gets tired of poor cytherea and then the disclosure of the truth will ruin and blacken both their futures irredeemably however he proceeded to execute his commission this he put in the form of a simple request from Owen to Manston, that Manston would come to the Southampton platform and wait for Owen's arrival, as he valued his reputation. The message was directed, as the rector had suggested, Edward guaranteeing to the clerk who sent it off that every expense connected with the search would be paid. No sooner had the telegram been dispatched than his heart sank within him at the want of foresight shown in sending it, had Manston all the time a knowledge that his first wife lived, 
the telegram would be a forewarning which might enable him to defeat Owen still more signally. Whilst the machine was still giving off its multitudinous series of raps, Edward heard a powerful rush under the shed outside, followed by a long sonorous creak. It was a train of some sort, stealing softly into the station. It was an up-train. There was the ring of a bell. It's certainly a passenger train. Yet the booking-office window was closed. Ho, ho, John, seventeen minutes after time, and only three stations up the line. The incline again? The voice was the station-master's, and the reply seemed to come from the guard. Yes, the other side of the cutting. The thaw has made it all in a perfect cloud of fog. The rails are as slippery as glass. We had to bring them through the cutting at twice. Anyone else for the 445 Express? the voice continued. The few passengers, having crossed over to the other side long before this time, had taken their places at once. A conviction suddenly broke in upon Edward's mind. Then a wish overwhelmed him. The conviction, as startling as it was sudden, was that Manston was a villain, who at some earlier time had discovered that his wife lived, and had bribed her to keep out of sight that he might possess Cytherea. The wish was to proceed at once by this very train that was starting, to find Manston before he could expect from the words of the telegram, if he got it, that anyone from Carriford could be with him, charge him boldly with the crime, and trust to his consequent confusion, if he were guilty, for a solution of the extraordinary riddle and release of Cytherea. The ticket office had been locked up at the expiration of the time at which the train was due. Rushing out, as the guard blew his whistle, Edward opened the door of a carriage and leapt in, the train moving along, and he was soon out of sight. Springrove had long since passed that peculiar line which lies across the course of falling in love, if, indeed, it may not be called the initial itself of the complete passion, a longing to cherish, when the woman is shifted in a man's mind from the region of mere admiration to the region of warm fellowship. At this assumption of her nature, she changes to him in tone, hue, and expression. All about the loved one that said she before, says we now. Eyes that were to be subdued become eyes to be feared, for a brain that was to be probed by cynicism becomes a brain that is to be tenderly assisted. Feet that were to be tested in the dance become feet that are not to be distressed. The once criticised accent, manner, and dress become the clients of a special pleader. 6. 5 to 8 o'clock p.m. Now that he was fairly on the track, and had begun to cool down, Edward remembered that he had nothing to show, no legal authority whatever to question Manston or interfere between him and Cytherea as husband and wife. He now saw the wisdom of the rector in obtaining a signed confession from the porter. The document would not be a deathbed confession, perhaps not worth anything legally, but it would be held by Owen, and he alone, as Cytherea's natural guardian, could separate them on the mere ground of an unproved probability 
or what might perhaps be called the hallucination of an idiot edward himself however was as firmly convinced as the rector had been of the truth of the man's story and paced backwards and forwards the solitary compartment as the train wound through the dark heathery plains the mazy woods and moaning coppices and resolved as ever to pounce upon manston and charge him with the crime due to the critical interval between the reception of the telegram and the hour at which owen's train would arrive trusting to circumstances for what he should say and do afterwards but making up his mind to be a ready second to owen in any emergency that might arise at thirty-three minutes past seven he stood on the platform of the station at southampton a clear hour before the train containing owen could possibly arrive making a few inquiries here but too impatient to pursue his investigation carefully and inductively he went into the town at the expiration of another half-hour he had visited seven hotels and inns large and small asking the same questions each and always receiving the same reply nobody of that name or answering to that description had been there a boy from the telegraph office had called asking for the same persons if they recollected rightly he reflected a while struck again by a painful thought that they might possibly have decided to cross the channel by the night boat then he hastened off to another quarter of the town to pursue his inquiries among hotels of the more old-fashioned and quiet class his stained and weary appearance obtained of him but a modicum of civility wherever he went which made his task yet more difficult he called at three houses in this neighbourhood with the same result as before he entered the door of the fourth house whilst the clock on the nearest church was striking eight have a tall gentleman named manston and a young wife arrived here this evening he asked again in words which had grown odd to his ears from the very familiarity a newly married couple did you say they are though i didn't say so they have taken a sitting-room and bedroom number thirteen are they indoors i don't know eliza yes ma'am see if number thirteen is in that gentleman and his wife yes ma'am has any telegram come for them said edward when the maid had gone on her errand no nothing that i know of some one did come and ask if there are mr and mrs masters or some such name were here this evening said another voice from the back of the bar parlour and did they get the message of course they did not they were not here they didn't come till half an hour after that the man who made inquiries left no message i told them when they came that they or the name something like theirs had been asked for but they didn't seem to understand why it should be and so the matter dropped the chambermaid came back the gentleman is not in but the lady is who shall i say nobody said edward for it now became necessary to reflect upon his method of proceeding his object in finding their whereabouts apart from the wish to assist owen had been to see manston ask him flatly for an explanation and confirm the request of the message in the presence of cytherea so as to prevent the possibility of the steward's palming off a story upon cytherea or eluding her brother when he came but here were two important modifications of the expected condition of affairs the telegram had not been received and cytherea was in the house alone 
End of chapter 13, part 2